Well, we've been in this series now uh, for the last six weeks, and uh, we've been looking at uh, this uh, time in Israel's history where they find themselves bored with God. They find themselves uh, not so impressed with God uh, in what he is doing. They feel like God has let them down. They feel like God isn't all that he said he would be. And as a result of that, God sends a prophet uh, who is Malachi. And Malachi comes, his name literally means my messenger, and he lives to that namesake, and he gives a message from the Lord, speaking to the people, telling them it is time to wake up, it is time to get excited about God and his kingdom and his plans that he had for the Israel nation. So Malachi goes and begins to announce it, and the people begin to listen to what is being shared. And in Malachi 2, where we find ourselves today, Malachi is speaking to the priests, those who should have known better, those who should have been announcing the message that Malachi was sharing. Here, Malachi finds himself addressing these priests because they had lost their way and had turned to other things instead of God. And as a result of that, they had fallen short of God's expectations. As I began to think about that, we talked a couple of weeks ago about five areas of failed leadership in the life of these priests. It says that they had grown uh, weary. They had grown weary of doing what the Lord had called them to do, and they were flawed in their leadership. And we talked about how we as a people must be careful that we too don't become flawed in our leadership. As a way of just quick review, uh, first of all, I'm going to uh, have us read the text, and then we're going to pray for our time, and then I'm going to get into our review and then move into uh, five attributes of spiritual, faithful leadership. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look to Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. This is what our text says, And now this admonition is for you, O priests, If you do not listen, and if you do not set your hearts to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I've already cursed them, because you have not set your heart to honor me. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants, and I will spread on your faces the awful from the festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. And you will know that I've sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me, and he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from sin. Now for the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you, speaking of the priest Malachi, says, you have turned away from uh, from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I've caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. Father God, we come before you and we stand in awe of your word. Lord, we have sung today about the indescribable nature of who you are, the greatness of who you are. We've spoken about how you've come and you've made us whiter than snow because of the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. And yet, Lord, as was just sung, we find ourselves running away from you. Even though you've shown grace and mercy and you've shown great patience and endurance, we find ourselves pursuing other things. Lord, what a a contemporary commentary on the day that Malachi lived in. Even though you had shown grace and mercy to the Israeli nation, they turned their back and they went running away for they were wearied in doing what you had commanded them to do. So Lord, we come in a similar spot today. Those who profess to be Christians, the priests of Almighty God, and yet we find ourselves bored with you, Lord. We find ourselves moving to pursue other things. Lord, this isn't just true of a congregation. This is true of myself. 
Lord, I have at times felt it more a burden than a blessing to serve and worship you. And Lord, as we look and review five areas of of flawed leadership, let us be reminded where we are flawed. Let us be reminded where we have failed as parents, as overseers, as church leaders, as as, uh, supervisors in our area of work, as leaders in the community. Lord, we have failed you and we have failed those that we serve. And Lord, we need to be reminded of that. But today, Father, I'm so glad that you do not leave us there as you did not leave the priest and the Israelite nation by the wayside, but you brought grace and mercy. And then you gave an example of what spiritually faithful leadership looks like. Father, I pray for every person in this place who is leading in whatever facet that we would be the latter, that we would be spiritually faithful people. And that as a result of that, we would draw many people to you, that we would lead many people to the truth. And as a result of that, we would have a vibrant and exciting and uh, worthwhile and fulfilling relationship with our God. And above all that, that your name would be made known to all the generations. Oh, Father, we need your help in this. So we ask for your spirit's leading as we open your word this morning. And all God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. Some have said that I preach too long of sermons. And so what I've done is now we're only going to deal with one point of my sermons at a time. So we will be done with the book of Malachi sometime in September of 2014 at the pace that we're going. A couple weeks ago, we got through the first point of this uh, passage of Scripture, looking at spiritually flawed leadership. These priests were leaders. We knew that they, we know from history that they were leaders in all facets of life. Their job was to help oversee the work of God through His people. They would oversee the sacrifices. They would oversee the temple. They were to oversee all that was going on. They were judges in uh, issues of dispute. They were leaders that people would go to and seek counsel and understanding about difficult topics and difficult problems. They were the ones that would come in and be the leaders of the group. They were known to be men of greatness. But as God comes in and as He looks down at that time, He gives an inspection and He gives a report card and they failed in five areas just quickly We see in verse 2 and 3 that uh, the first area they failed in is that the priests dishonored God's holiness. They dishonored God's holiness. What that meant was they did not honor the name of God. God didn't mean anything to him. He was just simply something that was out there, nothing of great significance. And they said, you know what? It's not really that big of a deal. God isn't all that he said he was. And they didn't say that per se with their mouth, but they did it with their actions. In verse 8, we see in the first part of that verse that after they dishonored God's holiness, they departed from God's ways. When God isn't a big deal in your life, then God's word and his truth isn't going to be that big of a deal either. And as a result of that, we, just as well as the priest in their day, will depart from God's way. They were departing from what God had announced in, through Moses in the Torah, through the Mosaic law, what they were supposed to do, how they were to receive sacrifices. They said, you know what? God's way is too difficult. God's way is too cumbersome. So what we'll do is we'll do it our way. There are some here today, parents and and leaders in our church who find themselves, instead of pursuing God's way, because that's a difficult way, we find an easier way to do it. So we pursue our way. And that's what they were doing. They were departing from the truth of the scriptures and doing it their own way. Well, what happened as a result? 8b, verse 8, the second part of it says that they brought damage to the spiritual life of others. When you dishonor God's holiness, when you depart from God's ways, what's going to happen? Well, it's going to affect your life, but as a leader, it's going to affect the lives of those who follow you. If you're a parent here today and you dishonor the name of God and you begin to live contrary to what Scripture says then we know that you may not be the only one affected, but your children may find themselves affected as well. 
There's an individual in our church who uh, has been quite open about their exploits early on in parenting, living an unbelieving life. And while uh, they uh, played around with church and played around with Christianity, they never came to make Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of their lives. And they say it was a bad thing, not just for me, but even worse, I look at my children who watched me live and now they've seen me change. And it's been very difficult for them to understand the change that has happened in me. What happened? This parent found themselves leading and uh, uh, leading others in a way that seemed right to them, but was contrary to the word of God. And it affected them. And some of their children are still not walking with the Lord. And they would go back and say it was because of how I led them early on. Next, we see that they desecrated the covenant God had given Look at what verse 8b uh, says. By your teaching, you've caused many to stumble and you have violated the covenant with Levi. This word covenant uh, in the Hebrew, uh, this violated of the covenant, literally means to violate, to corrupt. What that means is, is what these priests were doing in Malachi's day is they were corrupting the very job God had called them to. God wanted priests and the leaders of his people to be people of integrity, to be people who were of holiness and who pursued God with all their hearts. But what did they do? They found themselves saying, you know what, it's not that big of a deal to be a priest. We'll do it our way. And as a result of that, God said, you have violated, you have corrupted the very office that I've placed you into. Some of us as uh, parents, some of us as church leaders, some of us in leading positions have violated, have corrupted the, uh, the job that God has given us, the covenant God has given us. As a parent, God has placed three lovely boys into my life, and I have a covenant relationship not only with them, but I'm also held accountable on how to raise those boys in the fear and the word of the Lord. And if I start living the way I want to live, then I'm not leading the way God would call me to live. And in that, I'm violating the very Christian principles that I have in my job description as a Christian husband and father. He says they've desecrated the covenant. And finally, uh, what took place, they were despised by the people they served. They wanted to be popular. They wanted their job to be easy. And everything was seemingly going well. Everything seemed to be going fine. People were saying, hey, I'll go to priest so-and-so. He lets that lame animal into sacrifice. And I'm able to keep the better sac- or the better animal to give to market to make more money. I like priest so-and-so. Until Malachi comes in and he announces to the people that God is not happy with them. In fact, God is very angry with them. And I wonder what the people might have been saying when they they hear that and say, wait a minute, I thought what I was doing was right. When I went to priest so-and-so, he said it was okay. Now you're telling me because because he said it's okay and I did that, now I have sinned against God? You mean my relationship with God is no good? But my priest told me it was okay. Think about the response of a people who now hear that their God is angry and the consequences of curses are coming upon their life and they look to the priests and they say, it's because of you. You did this. Now God's angry at me and it's your fault. And it says in the text that they were despised and humiliated. That's what we learned two weeks ago. And what are we to pull from that? We are to pull from that that there can be in our lives flaws when it comes to our leading of other people. We are sinners. And because we are sinners, we find ourselves flawed in every facet of life. And as a result of that, we have to do all that we can to pursue Christ and His righteousness in every facet of our leading. So whether you're leading as a church leader, as an elder deacon, as a teacher in this church, if you're leading as a parent, as a husband leads a wife, and as a mom and dad lead their children, if you're leading as a supervisor at work, or you're a teacher at work supervising and and overseeing and leading kids, the thing we must remember is that we're not perfect. And not only are we not perfect, but we're flawed. And if we are doing these things as the priest did, we're going to find ourselves in a heap of trouble. 
We're going to find ourselves one day, if we do these things, that one day our children may come to us and say, but you said this was the way to be a good kid. You said this was the way uh, to find peace and contentment. And I have found nothing of that. You're no good as a parent. You have failed me. Maybe you are a church leader. And you are teaching. This is one thing I think about greatly in, in a great amount of times in my life. I'm going to stand before Almighty God. James says that teachers will come before a, or come under a stricter judgment. That brings me to a place of trembling. Because I will stand before God as a teacher of the Word of God, flawed with all my issues and dysfunctions. And yet I will stand before God for what was taught from this pulpit. What was taught from this place. And the question is going to be, did I help grow the people of God or did I teach you in a way that made it easy for you to live in the earthly realm? But when it came to the heavenly realm, God says, wait a minute, you're off base. We have to look at that and ask the question, are we spiritually flawed? As a result of that, we can see that if we are spiritually flawed, forgiveness needs to be asked. Maybe some of us as parents have found ourselves in a place where we have messed up. If you have and it's happened in the past, you go to your children and say, you know what, I blew it in this way. I didn't lead like I was supposed to. Maybe it means that you need to seek some repentance from God and say, God, I didn't mean to do it, but I did it. And as a result of that, I need to ask for your forgiveness. These priests hadn't done it. And look at, listen to what Malachi says. He says, as a result of this, he says, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings in verse 2. Yes, I've already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. He says, I'll rebuke your descendants. I will spread on your faces. Literally, that's the manure of your festival sacrifices and you'll be carried off with it. And we talked about what that meant. They would be disqualified from leadership. I pray that none of us here would be flawed to the point that we would disqualify ourselves. So what do we do? What if we are like the priest in Malachi's day who find themselves uh, walking the line of disqualification? Maybe you find yourself with paying the consequences of not being the kind of leader you need to be, not living the Christian life you are supposed to, and as a result of that, it's affected you and it's affected those who follow you. Is there any hope for you? It says that God's going to curse us. It says that God is going to reject us. Well, what are we to do with that? Where is the hope in that? Well, I want you to look at the word starting in verse 2. Look at verse 2. The, the word there is a very simple word. Even I can spell it and pronounce it. It's the word if. If. It is there that God brings grace and mercy. God says if you do not set your heart and if you do not listen and you do not honor my name, if you do that. Now, we need to understand something. They had failed in their leadership and God was beginning to bring curses on their life. But that statement in verse 2, commentators say, is a picture of grace. God is saying it doesn't have to be this way. You can change course. You can turn and go a different direction. Today is the day of the beginning of the rest of your life. It doesn't have to be whether you're 50 or 20 or 12. It doesn't have to be that way, the way it was in the past. You can commit today to change and turn to God and start leading the way he would want. Well, how are we to do that? In our text today, Malachi through God gives, a God through Malachi gives us an example. Let's look at what our text says here in verses four and five. It says, and you will know that I've sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue. What is he talking about here? My covenant with Levi. Does God have some stock with uh, the Blue Jeans Company? Levi Strauss, is that what he's talking about? I, I don't know any other Levi's. We need to understand what this covenant with Levi is all about. So we've got to learn who Levi is. Turn in your Bibles to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Keep your finger in Malachi and go to the book of Genesis. We need to understand who this Levi is and then understand this covenant that God has with him. Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. 
There isn't much mentioned about this man, Levi. But let's find out what it says. Because we need to understand this. If we want to live as spiritually faithful leaders, then we need to learn what this Levi guy did. And we need to understand how to do it in our own lives and leading. And we see beginning in Genesis. uh, Let's see here. I moved you too far too fast. Genesis 29. Go to 29. We'll get to 49 in a second. Genesis 29. Genesis 29, verse 34. I'll start reading in verse 31 as you're turning there. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It's because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, verse 33 says, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. I think it's quite ironic. There's no theological background to this, but quite ironic in the preacher's mind that the name Levi literally means to become attached to. Now think about that. God is saying, all right, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And the way back to righteous living, the way back to real leadership in God's mind is to look at Levi, whose name means to become attached to. You want to be a leader in your house? You want to be a leader in the community? You want to be a leader in the church? Then be Levi. Be attached. Get attached back to God. That's what Hebrew or the word Levi in the Hebrew means, to be attached, to join back together. What else do we know about this man? Well, we know that his father didn't have nice things to say about him. Turn to Genesis 49 now. Genesis 49. Levi's hanging out with his brothers. His dad is older and he's now going to give his last will and testament to his sons. And Jacob begins to announce to each of his sons, uh, some are blessings and some uh, are um, rebukes. And we need to see well, what kind of response does Jacob give to Levi? Look at what Genesis 49, 5 through 7 says. Simeon and Levi are brothers Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their counsel, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob, that's the land, and disperse them in Israel. Well, here... Jacob's going to each of his sons and he's saying, I love you, I love you, you're a good man, you're a good man, good, good. Gets to Simeon and Levi, not so good. That used to be the way things were at my house. Chris, good. Joel, good. Tim, we're going to talk over here. Why would Jacob say that about his his child Levi? Well, we need to understand what took place. We know in Genesis 34 that we find Jacob and his family are living near a city. And you can read this uh, later on in your time uh, alone. But in Genesis 34, they're living near a city. And that one of the city men, who was not a part of their family, sees one of Levi and Simeon's sisters, Dinah, and he says, hey, I, I like her. I want to have her as mine. And instead of going through the customary processes of going and seeking the approval of the father and the family, he says, I want her now. And he takes her and he defiles her. Jacob hears about this and he says, all right, if you've done that, the custom in our land is that you marry her now and you take care of her and her family. And they said, okay, we can do that. Well, then the two brothers, Simeon and Levi, uh, go into the city And Jacob goes and he tells the men, if you're going to do this intermarry between the townspeople and my people, then the custom is is that all men should be circumcised. And if you're going to marry our daughters, then we want you to be a part of this custom. So what happens? The men say, all right, you've got some nice-looking women, good personalities. We want to marry them. We will take the the plunge and uh, we will be circumcised. And that's what happens. 
And the pain is so bad, all the men are circumcised at one time, and men, you can identify with this, and they find themselves hurting in town. But Levi and Simeon think, hey, what an opportunity it is for us. They defiled our sister. They allowed a rape to take place, and now they get to marry our sister? No way. We'll deal with it our way. And while the guys are hurting at the worst possible time in their pain, Levi, Simeon, and some of the other men from Jacob's clan go and uh, destroy the men of the city. They kill him. They kill him out of revenge. They kill him in cold blood. And Jacob says, Levi and Simeon, you guys have some curses in your life as a result of the sin of murder that took place in Genesis 34. So what is this covenant with Levi? The Bible never talks about a covenant with Levi. So what is being announced here? If Levi the person didn't receive this covenant, then who did? Most scholars believe it wasn't Levi the man who received this covenant, but Levi the people. That's a better resume. If we look at the lineage of Levi, the tribe of Levi, we see some good things. First of all, in Exodus 2.1, we learned about this on Mother's Day, that we learn about a man named Amram, who is a man from the tribe of Levi. Amram is the father of who? Can anybody remember? Moses. Very good. Well done. He's the father of Moses. That makes Moses and his brother Aaron a Levi. So that starts out good. That's a good couple leaders in the church or in the, in the nation of Israel at that time. They're Levites. We see also, turning your Bibles to Exodus for a moment, give you just a quick history lesson. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. We find ourselves, if you ever watched, uh, I think it's Cecil DeMille's uh, rendition of this in the Ten Commandments. If you've never read through the book of Exodus, we'll help you out. We've crossed the Red Sea. We find ourselves in the wilderness. God is uh, talking with Moses. Moses is up on the Mount Sinai. And uh, what's going on down in the valley? We find out that Aaron is raising a ruckus and he's building a calf, a golden calf, uh, so that the people could worship them. They felt God had left them. Moses had left them. And it was time to worship their own God. So look at what it says in Exodus 32, verse 25. Moses comes down, he becomes angry. And it says, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And look at what it says. And all, not the Simeonites, not the people from the uh, nation of Dan, but the Levites rallied to him. All of those that have been with Moses, his cousins and his group and his clan, all come and say, we're with you, Moses. Everybody else may be against you, but we're with you. And look at what Moses says. It says, so he stood at the entrance. He says, whoever's with me, the Levites rallied to him. Then he said, this is what the Lord said, the God of Israel, each man strap a sword to his side go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. It's rated R, this Exodus 32. It says, The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Now listen to what Moses says. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. That's the beginning of God's covenant with the people of Levi. And through that, we are going to see something more come as a result that they stood up when nobody else would. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers for a moment. If you're in Exodus, you're going to go through the book of Leviticus and then the book of Numbers. Numbers 18. So they stood up. For Moses and God's holiness and what takes place, uh, Numbers 18, 1-7 tells us what happens. It says, The Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's family, that's the Levites, are to bear responsibility for offenses against the sanctuary. And you alone, you and your sons alone are to bear the responsibility for the offenses against the priesthood. 
Bring your fellow Levites from your ancestral tribe to join you and assist you when you and your sons minister before the tent of testimony. They are responsible to you and you are to perform all the duties of the tent, but they must not go near the furnishings of the sanctuary or the altar or they and you will die. They are to join and be responsible for the care of the tent meeting, all the work at the tent, and no one else may come near it where you are. You are responsible for the care of the sanctuary and the altar so that the wrath will not fall on the Israelites again. I myself have selected you fellow Levites from among the Israelites. Listen to what it says. As a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord to do the work at the tent of meeting. That's the worship place. That's a place where sacrifice takes place. But only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. I'm giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. God says as a gift of your following me and following my chosen leader, Moses, I'm going to give you a job. Your job is going to be to take care of my worship, to take care of my sacrifice. And as a result of that, this gift is going to not just be for you, but for your ancestors. So the men in Malachi's day, the priests that Malachi is talking about, are these descendants of Levi. They're the Levitical priesthood. Well, there's one more thing I want to show you in the Old Testament, and that is found in one particular part of Numbers 25. So turn from Numbers 18 to Numbers 25. The reason why I bring this up is because there's terminology used, speaking of this priest Phineas, who is a part of Aaron's tribe, the Levitical tribe, who finds himself in a place that just like his ancestors did, he stands up for God in his holiness. Listen to what goes on here. While Israel was staying in, and I'm going to leave that blank there, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to, to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before their gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of these people, kill them and expose in broad daylight before the Lord, expose them in broad daylight before the Lord so that the Lord's fierce anger may not turn from the, from Israel. So Moses said to Israel's judges, each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then the Israel, then an Israelite man. Listen to what goes on here. Verse five, it says, get rid of anybody who's worshiping Baal. I don't want anybody there that's worshiping someone else other than myself. But look, notice what happens. An Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly. And while they were weeping at the entrance of the, to the tent of meeting, when Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. What's going on here? This man, in, in broad daylight, takes a foreign woman who follows Baal as her god, takes her into his tent to have sex with her. And what does Phineas do? Phineas goes and he takes a spear, it says, he follows the Israelite into the tent and he drives the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. It says, then the plague against the Israelites stopped, but those who died in the plague, number 24,000. God was cleaning house. And who was his man? This man named Phineas. Now listen to what it says in verse 10. Phineas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my anger away from the Israelites, for he was as zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Listen to what he says now. Therefore, tell him, Phineas, I am making my covenant of peace with him. That's the same terminology that's brought up in Malachi, a covenant of peace. Now listen to what he says. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. Now turn back to Malachi. Now we've got an understanding of what's going on. 
Malachi says to uh, the priest. Now we understand a little more of Malachi 2. Look at what he says. And now this admonition is for you, you Levites, you ancestors of Phineas. You did not listen and you have not set your hearts to honor me, verse 1 says. What he's saying is, is you didn't live like Phineas did. He honored my name in such a way that when he saw defilement, he went and took care of it because he had a zeal for my honor and my greatness and glory. So he dealt with it. What are the priests of Malachi's day doing? They're not. So God says, look back to your, pre, uh, your priests of yesteryear. And he gives five attributes. Let's move through these quickly this morning. There are five attributes we see of spiritually faithful leadership. You don't want to be flawed in your leadership? First of all, it begins by responding to God with obedience. Look at verse 2. Responding to God with obedience. He says, if you listen, look at it in a positive sense. You need to listen. You need to set your heart. You need to honor God. That's what they are doing. What God is calling the priest to do is to obey them. Obey him. That they need to be involved in obeying him, doing what he commands. Literally, it means that they are to be consumed with him. Phineas was consumed with God. That was what he was all about. And as a result of that, he obeyed God and did what God had commanded of him. These priests hadn't. He demanded obedience. He demanded a following. And they said, you know what? It's too hard, God. We're going to do it our way instead of the way that you would have for us. If we want to be leaders that God wants us to be, we need to be like a man, a young boy, in fact, named Samuel. That when God called, Samuel's response was, your servant is listening. When was the last time in your leading that you stopped and asked God, am I honoring you? Am I setting my heart to you? And just stopped and listened to hear what God had to say. Far too many parents, far too many leaders in the church find themselves not listening to God and doing way too much talking. It's been said that we've been given one mouth and two ears. What should we be doing more of? Listening. And yet we as leaders find ourselves talking way too much, a sin that I deal with on a great level, talking too much and not listening. If we don't listen, we will never set our heart on the obedience God has for us. Look at the next thing it says. It says that spiritually faithful leadership reveres God as awesome and faithful. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. Sounds like Phineas again. And I gave them to him. This called for reverence and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. As leaders, if we do not revere God, if we do not fear God, then we will fail as parents, as bosses, as adults in this world. Why? Because the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Do you want someone leading you who does not have wisdom? Do you want someone, uh, do you want your parents to be leading you and not making wise decisions? Do you want your supervisor making decisions about you who's not, not uh, wise? Do you want uh, your leaders, your elders and deacons to be making decisions about the church who do not have the wisdom that comes from God? Excuse me, it begins by us revering God as being awesome and as being faithful. The reason why we say awesome and faithful was they had forgotten what God had done through the people that they had gone before them. And as a result of that, they had forgotten how awesome God was. God demands it. In Jeremiah 5.22, He demands that we fear Him. It's not a question of maybe I feel like fearing Him. It says you ought to fear me. And He doesn't understand in that text why the Israelites chose not to fear Him. He says I to be feared. Now, does this mean we're to be scared of Him? No. It is a reverence. A.W. Tozer says the practice of fearing God involves a process. It begins with a fascination about God. It then moves after we've studied about God and understood God a little more. We move from fascination to respect. Then from respect, we go to admiration. We say, hey, not only do I respect God, but I'm starting to admire you, God. You're, you're someone I can follow. You're someone that I can uh, try to live up to being. But it goes beyond that. Because he goes on, A.W. Tozer says that it must involve and it must get to adoration. 
You can't just say, well, I I respect the wind. I respect the storm and say that you uh, are revering God. No, you're respecting a byproduct of God's greatness. It must come to the point that I say as I look at the clouds and I look at the storms coming in, not only am I fascinated by it, but I'm also, uh, I respect it. I admire it. Wow, that's, that's a pretty powerful storm. But then it brings me to say, I worship the God of the storm. If you're not, if you're not processing that as a leader, then you are going to find yourself flawed in your parenting and in any other area of leading. We have to marvel in God because if we don't, we will fail to submit to Him. Next, we see it, it involves res, uh, resolving to live a holy life. Spiritually faithful uh, leading resolves to live a, fa- uh, a holy life. Look at verse 6. It says that this man, Levi, his people of uh, the Levitical priesthood, walked in uprightness. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. This word uprightness in the Hebrew literally is a picture of total obedience. God went left, he went left. God went right, he went right. The book of the law said A, B, and C, and the Levitical priesthood did A, B, C, and asked when does D need to be done. They walked in total uprightness before God. Were they perfect? No, absolutely not. But they were obedient. And if we want to be a people who are spiritually faithful in our leading, then we must be a spiritually faithful people. If you want to lead in a way that brings holiness out of your children and holiness out of the church that you lead and holiness out of the people that you're around, it begins with you living a life of holiness. Don't expect your children to supersede your Christian uh, background. If you're not holy, then there's a good chance that they're not going to live up to any higher degree than you. The reason why I'm reaching as high as I am, not because of me or the drive in me, but I've seen set before me a godly mother and father who set such a high mark that I sat there and said, I want to do it. I want to be there. And I don't think there will ever be a day where I'll be as spiritual as my father, as faith-filled as my mother, because they set a wonderful mark, but I'm going to do all that I can to live up to the example they gave me. Can you say that about your own family today? Are you placing a mark in your children's life that says, this is who we are. We are a faithful people. Now live in light of that and live up to it. Next, we see that he, uh, they reproved people regarding their sin. They corrected the people. Now notice what it says of the spiritually unfaithful, the spiritually flawed. It said that they had allowed many uh, to cause, uh, had caused many to stumble. You you lead in your own flesh, you'll cause people to stumble. Notice what it says of the spiritually faithful. It says that you will bring people back from their sin. He says, as a result of that, he turned many from sin in verse 6. The Levitical priesthood in the past turned people from their sin. Malachi's day, they were leading people towards sin. What are you doing today as a leader? Are you turning people towards sin or are you pushing people and correcting people to holiness? There's two options. There's no in-between. If you're not pushing your children and the people around you to holiness, then there's a good chance you're pushing them back towards sin. Well, how do we, uh, what, what, did the, what did this involve? We don't know. There's no information given on what uh, uh, the Levitical priesthood did to bring people back from sin, to turn them in the direction that they were going. But the New Testament tells us something. Turn in your Bibles, if you can, for just a quick moment, to Second uh, uh, Timothy. Second Timothy. How are we to do that as parents, as leaders in the church, as leaders in the community? How are we to uh, turn people away from sin. Second Timothy chapter 3. Chapter 3 verse uh, 14 through 16 gives this for us. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy. But as for you, continue in the way that you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from 
whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, listen to what it says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, the Bible that we hold in our hand, is God-breathed. Now listen to what it says, parents, leaders. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the child that you have, so that the people that you follow, so that anyone who's following your leadership, Paul says, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want your child to walk in the way of the Lord? Teach him the word. You want to uh, see the people around you follow God instead of following the word, uh, following the world? Teach them the word. If you want your church to pursue Christ likeness instead of following the ways of Oprah and all the other teachers in this world, then teach them the word. They were reproving people regarding their sin. They were correcting them. And it was probably being done through the use of Scripture. Finally, they represented God to others. They represented God to others. Look at verse 7 of Malachi 2. Malachi 2 verse 7 says, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. They represented God to others. Can you say today that as your children look at you this morning, that they see Christ do they see Jesus, and not in how you act here at church, but how you act at home? When the doors are shut, when none of the neighbors can hear what's going on, do you represent Christ to them? Do you represent Christ to your coworkers? Do you represent Christ to your neighbors? Do you represent Christ to the family members who don't know God? Spiritually faithful leadership represents Christ in an amazing way. And not only do they, they correct people when it comes to their sin, but they show them the way. The way is Jesus. And they represent Him as a messenger from God. Well, how do you get there? How do we get there? I want you to write down in your outlines Deuteronomy 33, 8-11. We don't have time to uh, go into it in detail, but I'm just going to give you a highlight of what is talked about. Moses in Deuteronomy 38, 11, speaks to the Levites and he gives them a blessing. As he's blessing the tribes of the nation, this is what he says of the Levite people. In verse 8 of Deuteronomy 33, he says they've been tested and been found faithful. In verse 9, it says that their number one goal in life wasn't family, wasn't parents, wasn't brothers or sisters, or even kids. But their number one passion was God. Their number one passion was God and Him alone. Now let's stop there. Have you been tested and remained faithful? If you have, you're spiritually faithful in your leadership. Is God your number one goal in life? We live in a child-centered world where children seem to be number one. God says He is to be number one. My father's example was this. God, my mom, His children, number three, and everything was a distant fourth. I like what Richard Baxter, a Puritan, uh, once said, the great and lamentable sin of Christians today is that they are not fully devoted to God. They do not give themselves up wholly to the blessed work that they have undertaken to do. Is it not true that the flesh-pleasing and our self-seeking interests, which are distinct from that of Christ, make us as a people neglect our duty and lead us to walk unfaithfully in the great trust that God has given us? Is it not true that we should serve God? Uh, is it not true that we serve God too cheaply? Do we not do so in the most applauded way? Do we not withdraw from that which cost us the most suffering? Does not all this show us that we as Christians are more earthly and pursue earthly things rather than the heavenly things? And that we mind the things which are below and not above? Yet we proclaim to the unbeliever the realities which are above. Do we not idolize the world that they live in? So what remains to be said, my brothers, but to cry out that we are all guilty of too many of the aforementioned sins, that it is time for us to humble ourselves in lamentations for our gross miscarriages before the Lord. Spiritually faithful leadership says, God, you are number one. Moses goes on in verse 9, he says, You revered the word and the covenants of God. Verse 10 says, They taught the word to others. And verse 11 said that their worship pleased God. That's a checklist. You should look at that passage and ask yourself, Am I leading 
like the Levites did. Well, what comes as a result? Let me close with these three things. Malachi 2.5 says a reward is given. It says that you will live in a covenant of life and peace, the Levite priests would. Literally, this is a life of contentment, a life that has no wants. If you pursue God, then God says you'll have contentment. You won't have riches. You may not have all the things that you want in the world, but you will be content with the things that you have. Paul is a great example of that, being content in what he had and what he did not have. When we make God our leader and we pursue God, everything that the world says we need to have will not be an option for us because we will be content in the Lord. A reward is given. Next, we see a relationship is experienced. It said, he walked with me in peace in verse 6. He walked with me in peace. This is a picture of intimacy. Lead according to God's ways. Lead according to the plan that God has for you. And as a result of that, you will experience with your Savior intimacy. Finally, a respect is due. It says, men should seek instruction. From who? From you. Verse 7. When you follow God, please hear me. When you follow God and you make sure that His Word is coming from your mouth and as you instruct and as you teach, what is going to take place? People are going to come to you to seek instruction. I have seen this so vividly in my own life. 10, 12 years ago, no one would have come and talked to me about anything. I wasn't to be trusted. I had no wisdom. And yet God moved in me. And my father said, you want to be trusted? You want to be uh, held in high esteem? Then you start studying God's Word. And you make God's Word everything that comes out of your mouth. And people will come to you in their hour of need. And at 32 years of age, when I should not be instructing anyone other than anybody younger than me, people twice my age come for wisdom. Not as a picture of, wow, Tim, that's pretty great, but as a testimony when you lead under the auspices of God, people will come to hear not your instruction, not your wisdom, but God's wisdom. You want your kids to come to you and seek your wisdom? Then start preaching and teaching the Word of God to them at every chance that you have. They'll come in their hour of need. Unbelievers will come and seek instruction because the Bible says you are a messenger of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, we have seen spiritually faithful leadership brought from history all the way to our text this morning. And Lord, I pray that this would be a reminder of us that just like the Levitical priesthood before Malachi's day, that we too would find ourselves pursuing you in your holiness, that we would revere you, that we would honor you, that we would praise you, that we would be like Phineas and many of those of old who would stand in the gap for you. And Lord, in doing so, that we would receive a covenant of peace and life, that we would be found contented in all that we do, not for our own gain or for our own pursuits or accolades, but Father, that it would be done that as we lead others, that they too would be found with righteousness in their lives, that they would pursue holiness in all that they do. Oh Lord, we as leaders want people who follow us to see our example. And as a result of seeing our example, that they will now imitate us as we imitate Christ. So Lord, we need your spirits guiding and leading so that we can imitate you in the best possible way. Give us the strength and the endurance to make that happen so that in the end, your name will be great among the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.